Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, somebody mistakenly walked up this morning and told me that I looked very rested. I said, that's impossible. <laughs> Number three daughter called us on Tuesday and said they're moving to Provo, Utah. So uh, my, my son-in-law accepted a job up there. So we were over there on Friday working on their house, trying to get it ready to sell. And Teresa was over there yesterday. And if everything goes according to plan, I'll be driving a U-Haul to Provo, Utah over spring break. So never a dull moment at our house. It was interesting this week. I told uh, Teresa that the circle is complete. I started my class at TCU on Tuesday night, and one of the students was in my history class three years ago as a high school student, so small world after all. We're going to continue today in 1 Peter. Two weeks ago, we started with the prologue. Last week, we started in verse 3 and had a discussion about salvation. So I'm going to start reading there just to remind us what we talked about last week. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we actually kind of started last week with the verse about rejoicing even though we are grieving. Because we rejoice because of the salvation that has been given to us, even though for a time, if necessary, we may be going through difficulties and trials. And I mentioned last week that we don't really know in great depth what the trials were at this part of this particular geographic area at this particular time. But we had a discussion about, you know, this spectrum of trials and tribulation with martyrdom at this end and at the other end just the well, the people abusing us because, well, we believe strange stuff. And I, in my mentality, have always been very uh, shy about calling this stuff trials and tribulations because historically I know about this stuff. I know the actual martyrdom, and I'm going, what is that? Well, what is this compared to that? But the reality is, this is where we live. 
The world that we live in today is beginning to reject Christianity. I read a fascinating article this week. It was a bizarre article, actually. And it was talking about the rise of modern liberalism, liberalism in the probably good sense of the word, of more freedom, etc. And this one person was just very adamant. What it was liberating us from was Christianity. Because Christianity was the thing that was restricting us. And I'm going, Christianity was the foundation of all of this. The whole idea that we have inherent dignity as human beings did not come from Rome or Greece or anything else. It came from Christianity. Yet we have this mentality, that's what we need to throw away. And I might add, and once again, this was a very bad sense of the word, liberal argument, but even some of the people participating in it said, no, it was Christianity that started this. And anyway, it was interesting. So we live in an age that is rejecting certain aspects of the Christian belief. And as such, we are beginning to undergo trials. We're not being martyred, don't get me wrong, but we are beginning to experience the trials. So last week we kind of started there. We went back and looked at all of those phrases discussing salvation, and then we got back to the trials and tribulation, and that's where we're going to pick it up again this week. So, that's what we're going to do. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's where we ended. This contradiction, if you will, we rejoice even though we grieve. And if you remember the very end of last week's lesson, it's not that we rejoice and pretend the bad stuff's not happening. The bad stuff's happening and it hurts. We do grieve. That's why the Bible tells us we rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we mourn with those that are mourning. So, picking it up right there. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that's perished, though it is tested by fire. Let's start with the easy part, gold. The only piece of gold I own is this piece right here. And uh, at some point, they purify this thing by melting it. You know, you melt it and you get out the impurities. Now, in reality, they add some stuff back to it to make it a little firmer because gold is pretty soft on its own. Years ago, Teresa's ring had uh, this silver part of it. And she took it to the jeweler and goes, what is that? And she go, the jeweler said, have you been around any mercury? Yes. Mercury leaches into gold. So what did they do? They warmed it up, they heated it, and the impurities were removed from it. So gold is tested by fire. But we also know even though gold is tested by fire, gold is part of the material world. 
and the material world is decaying. Everything in the material world is decaying. If you doubt that, just kind of test your knees in the morning, okay? We know that the material world is decaying, but we also place great value on this. It's gold. It's valuable. Now, Peter is telling us that faith is more valuable than gold. So the first observation that I have to ask myself is, do I really believe that? Okay, you show up and say, okay, I'll give you 100 ounces of gold or I'll give you a bag full of faith. Okay, well, I'll sit there and think, you know, I can get the faith later, some other time. I'll work at it. I don't know. I'll take the gold. My dad actually had a friend who bought an option on 1,000 ounces of gold. And generally, when you get to the end of the option, you exercise the option and you sell it. He said, no, send me the gold. What does 1,000 ounces of gold look like? I have no idea. But we, throughout history to today, place great value on gold. It's kind of the thing that everybody recognizes is valuable. And Peter is telling us faith is more valuable than that. But it's not just faith. It is a particular kind of faith. It is a faith that is tested and is genuine. So let's look at those two words and see if we can figure out what they mean. Let's start with genuine. What is genuine faith? Well, we know from James that there is such a thing as dead faith. It is faith that has no effect on your life. Sure, I believe, but it has absolutely no effect on how I live my daily life. James tells us that's dead faith. You see someone in need, they come to you and say, I'm really in need. I need food for lunch. And you go, great, I'll pray for you. And you turn and you walk away. And James says, that's dead faith. If you've got the money in your pocket, and let's, for generosity's sake, let's say this is a Christian brother. You know who they are. You know they're actually in need and you've got the money in your pocket, and you say, I'll pray for you, and you walk away, James says, that's not genuine faith. So the question is, faith that is not genuine, well, you might as well take the bag of gold, because the gold has some value. The non-genuine Faith has no value. So genuine faith is faith that has the correct object, that is Jesus Christ. People have a lot of faith in a lot of things. 
I have faith in this. I have faith in that. I say I'm going to base my life on this thing or that thing. That's not genuine biblical faith. Genuine biblical faith has as its object God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because nothing else will provide the foundation for your life. So genuine faith has the correct object and it produces something in your life. You have some action coming out of it. Now, I'm going to jump ahead for just one second to give us a very long digression. Hopefully not that long. I was talking with uh, Doug Cecil, and he said, so, in all your teaching, what is the most complicated thing you talk about? And I guess, you know, you're thinking about the Trinity. That's hard to explain. Everybody always says predestination. I mean, you know, some of you are just not predestined to understand it. They're hard. But that's not what I told him. I told him the thing that I always get back to is the relationship between faith and works. He goes, hmm, why? And then I mildly chastised him about his sermon. Anyway, that's a whole different topic. Everything we talked about last week Everything we talked about last week regarding salvation, everything we talked about should convince you that salvation, your justification, is totally, 100% a work of God. You contribute nothing to it. But maybe later in just a moment, or next week for sure, we're going to get down here in 1 Peter, and he's going to tell you to do something. And your mind and my mind is going to go, okay, God did it all, then I don't really have to do something. Or your mind's going to go, Oh, it's telling me to do something, so I'm not really saved unless I do something. Both of those are wrong. When we are saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ and accept that by faith, genuine faith says, okay, God, what do I do about it? How do I live my life? It doesn't say, thank you, God, I'm going to go sit in my easy chair and enjoy your grace. James tells us that's dead faith. So sometime, maybe today, probably next week, we're going to mention verse 13. Therefore, prepare your mind for action and for being sober-minded. Set your hope fully, blah, blah, blah. Be holy 
And guess what? When God, through the Holy Spirit, through Peter, tells us to be holy, what does God expect us to do? Be holy. It isn't a, well, if you feel like doing it. It is what God has instructed us by faith to do. Genuine faith has the correct object and it produces something in your life. That is genuine faith. If your faith is in something but Jesus, it's not genuine. If your faith does not produce an action, it is not genuine. So, two words in this passage describing faith. Genuine, and that's the easy one. And the next one is tested. What does it say? So that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is tested faith? Let's say that you think, and by the way, this is a true story that I'm not going to tell you too much about. Well, I'll tell you, okay? My, my brother was commenting about this kid who played all these video games of football, and for some reason thought because he had played the video games of football, he was really good at football. Guess what? He didn't know squat about football. Not a thing about football. The first time somebody runs into you and knocks you on your butt, you begin to realize you don't know anything about football. It was not a tested knowledge of football. And you sit here in church. No, forget you. I sit here in church, and I hear sermons about faith, and I hear sermons about how wonderful it is. And you know what I begin to think? I'm really good at football. I'm really good at faith. Yep, you're right. I have the faith that can move mountains. <clears throat> but I'm not going to use it. It might upset somebody. But you know what? I'm deceiving myself because my faith has not been tested. How is faith tested? Well, we see it right here. You are grieving because of trials for a time. There is no faith in the world. Well, let me reverse that. Every faith is good enough when times are good. Every faith. Oh, yeah, I, I believe. I believe. Until it costs something. I mean, let's go down to the extreme example where we were. Remember our spectrum? Okay, the Roman soldier shows up. Say a prayer to Caesar or we're going to throw you to the lions. 
Well, hmm, it's not that big a deal to say a prayer to Caesar. Burn a little incense, mouth some words, God will forgive me later. Sure, why not? Your faith has just been tested and you failed. But you know what? Forget the extreme example. You're at some get-together, co-workers, acquaintances, people who live in the complex where you live, neighbors, whatever, and somebody says, you know, those Christians are idiots. Maybe it's not even that, and you go, what about those cowboys? You change the subject. You kind of melt away. Your faith has not survived being tested. When difficult times come, our faith is tested. And what is more valuable than gold? Tested, genuine faith. If you back up just a few pages in your Bible, Right before 1 Peter is the book of James. Starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We can just stop there for one second. What is steadfastness? I am in a Greek army in 500 BC. That Greek army is known as a phalanx. I've got a row of guys with huge spears. And behind them are another row of guys with huge spears. And behind them are another row of guys with huge spears. And we are pointing our spears toward the bad guys, and we are running at each other, and we're going to hit. Steadfastness means you will stand in that line. You will stand next to the guy here, and you will stand next to the guy there. That is steadfastness. Standing in the place where you need to be. What does tested faith give us? The ability to stand where God has put us. And you know cases where this didn't happen, right? And by the way, you know places where this did happen. Remember all these martyrs? Go read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It'll just do something to you. But what we oftentimes forget is that Fox's Book of Martyrs describes the martyrs. There were a bunch of people who weren't steadfast. Just this morning, I read a story, a little Greek island during World War II. And the Nazis show up and say to the mayor, Give us a list of all the Jews in your, on your island. 
And the mayor goes, God, I don't know what to do. So he went to the bishop, said, what do we do? And the next day, the bishop and the mayor went to the Germans and said, here's the list. And there were two names on the list. What were they? The name of the mayor and the name of the bishop. And the Nazi didn't know what to do, and he left. That is steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And just to continue, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We rejoice because the trial is proving, testing, purifying our faith. So that we end up with tested, genuine faith. We talk about Abraham. Abraham being told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. And you go, man, that would be hard. And you're right, you know, it would be really hard. But we also need to remember that God didn't start with Abraham right there. God started with Abraham over here. Take this step. Okay, you took that step. Take this step. Take this step. Take that step. And what we begin to realize is that our faith grows. Or it doesn't, because it's not genuine faith. So, in this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is the revelation of Jesus Christ? Well, obviously, Jesus came to earth. That's what we have in the Gospels. Uh, but Peter's probably not talking about that. But someday we know Christ is going to return. Christ is going to return, and our faith is going to produce what? Praise, glory, and honor. So here's the question. Who is receiving the praise, glory, and honor? There's two possible answers. One is Jesus, and the second is us. And you want me to tell you what the answer is? Yes. You go, ah, that sounds a little, uh, uh, well, sounds a little arrogant. Okay? Obviously, all the praise, all the honor, all the glory go to Jesus Christ. Because it is, it is Jesus Christ, start to finish, that accomplishes all of this. Of course that's true. But do you remember the parable? The master's going on a trip. He gives one guy 100 bucks, another guy 50 bucks, another guy 10 bucks, says, take care of it. I'm going to be gone for a while. 
And he comes back, and the guy that he'd given 100 bucks to has 100 more. And what does Jesus say? I mean, what does the master say? Well, it was my money anyway. No. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. What is that? Praise, glory, and honor. The master bestowing it because the servant had exercised genuine, tested faith. And of course, the last guy who buried his under a rock gets no praise at all. Who is the praise, the glory, and the honor for? Yes. All of it belongs to Jesus Christ. All of it is caused by the work of Jesus Christ. But we are told, as faithful servants, we will be praised for our obedience. Well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you a little and you took care of it. Now I can give you more. (sighs) Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, starting at the end of that sentence. Obtaining the salvation of your souls. Do you remember our discussion? We've had this multiple times. The scripture talks about salvation being complete. We are saved. We refer to that as justification. But the scripture also talks about our salvation as a work in progress. We understand that to be sanctification, the process of working out what God has put into us. But there will come a time when our salvation will be complete. When all of this trials, if necessary, whatever they are on this spectrum, when all of that is done with, and we will have obtained our salvation. That's what we have to look forward to. That, as we're going to see, is what gives us hope. But you know what? I don't know about you. Last year, Therese and I go to Israel. We were supposed to go the year before. We were supposed to go the year before, but this strange thing called COVID kicked up. And you know, you walk around and the guide says, yep, Jesus was probably standing right there. Now, some of it is just guessing. I mean, they'll they'll admit that. You know, it was the Sermon on the Mount on this hill. Well, that's where the church is, but it could have been over here and nobody would have. I mean, it doesn't violate the scripture. But you get into the Steps going up to the temple, and Jesus was probably right there. And you begin to think, I begin to think, 
Wouldn't it be cool to sit there on those steps and listen to Jesus talk? You know, you walk up and you poke him a little bit. And he's there. He's real. He's physically there. And you read the Gospels. All of these things. And you go, yeah, if only I could see that. Then I would have faith. Then I would believe. But Peter reminds us, we don't see him now. Okay? Some of you, at some point, in some dream, vision, whatever, may have seen Jesus. I'm, I'm all on board with that. Okay? But today, all you have to look at is me. Poor substitute. After this, you get to look at Cody. Eh, better, but not still there. We need our tested, genuine faith because sometimes we just begin to worry because we don't see him. Jesus actually addressed this. Blessed are those who believe even though they haven't seen. Now, this could produce a whole discussion, once again, about faith, about believing. Okay? You've heard the bad definition of faith, right? This is one that's used by a lot of unbelievers. Faith is believing something you know is not true. Okay? I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. In the Easter Bunny. One of my children sent a text this week. Because of the price of eggs, this year we're just going to paint potatoes. <laughs> but we believe in the Easter Bunny, or we believe in Santa Claus, and we know it's not true, but the kids like it, and it's fun. And some people say, that's where Christians think about God. That's faith. No, that's not faith. Why do we believe there is a God? Why do we believe in Jesus? Because we see what he has done. We have seen that he kept his promises, therefore we have faith that he will continue to keep his promises. We have seen what he has created, therefore we have confidence that he does, in fact, control the world. But that doesn't mean sometimes it's not hard. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who, even though they have not, with their physical eyes seen, have faith. And the physical eyes are an interesting thing. John has two or three chapters in the Gospel of John Discussing this, Jesus heals a blind man. But that's just the start of the discussion. The discussion is not the physical blindness, but the spiritual blindness of the people. Spiritual 
blindness prevents us from seeing how God has accomplished his purposes in the past. Therefore, we do not have faith that he will accomplish them in the future. We don't see with our physical eyes, but we have faith because of what Jesus and God has done in the world and for us. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. We read one of the prophets, okay? Pick your favorite minor prophet. And by the way, when we finish 2 Peter, we're going to go do the minor prophets. Pick your favorite minor prophet. You know, the minor prophets are called minor because they wrote little tiny books, okay? So you're Nahum, and your life story is this little tiny book. What was Nahum doing the rest of the time? What was Micah doing the rest of the time? Well, I'll tell you what he was doing. He was sitting there trying to figure out what God was up to. Notice what it says. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Let me just throw this out. What are we supposed to be doing about the things of God? Searching and inquiring carefully. So you're a prophet, and you're sitting over here, I don't know, 600 years before Christ, 400 at the smallest, and you've got these words, and you're going, wow, God's up to something. What is it? And what Peter is telling us is the, what is it, is Jesus Christ. All of these prophets were telling us truths about God that they didn't totally understand because Jesus Christ had not been revealed. But you know what? They carefully inquired and studied. What did they study? What person or time the Spirit of Christ, that by the way would be the Holy Spirit, in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. That's why sometimes the book of Isaiah gives us, well, it gave the Jews in the, at the time of Christ a hard time. Because you got all these prophecies about the descendant of David sitting on the throne, conquering, kill the Romans, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you had all these about the suffering servant. And you know what? We're over here. We can look back and say, wow, I see how that works. But if you're over here, you're inquiring going, wow, what is God up to? What is God up to? 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Think about this. I'm this minor prophet. And just to be clear, I don't think they were referred to on the street as minor prophets. Hey, there's another minor prophet. I'm a minor prophet. I've got a word from God for the people of the time. But it dawned on them, it isn't just for these people. Peter is telling us, it's for us. It's for us. They were predicting something. They were prophesying something that they were not going to see the fulfillment of. Go over to Hebrews. All these people who live by faith, and it says they didn't get what they thought they were going to get. Now, God didn't forsake them, okay? But they were living by faith, pointing to what the audience that is reading Peter's letter have received in Jesus Christ. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that they had now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Every year, we celebrate Christmas. And we sing our Christmas carols. I like Christmas carols, by the way. We sing our Christmas carols. We tell our Christmas story. Baby Jesus in a manger. Great story. Okay? Great story. But sometimes we, not sometimes, me, all the time, lose sight of what's going on. All the prophets are sitting there talking about this event. The angels in heaven are looking down, going, what in the world is God up to? I don't think they're saying, has he lost his mind? Okay, but that would be my attitude. Is he nuts? Did we just see God born in a stable? What's up with that? We've got a really nice white horse. We could put Jesus on top of that white horse. We could have a guard of angels going around him. He'll go into Jerusalem and he'll clean this thing up. No time. And Peter is telling the readers of this. All this was done for your salvation. All of it. The angels wanted to figure it out. The prophets wanted to figure it out. And now you have seen it. Peter is writing a book to a group of churches who are beginning to experience trials and tribulation. And they're real. They're not make-believe. They're not somebody wrote something bad about me on the internet. They are real trials and tribulations. 
And he knows that that tests your faith. So we have spent the last three lessons telling the people, let me tell you the salvation that you received. And then you know what? We rejoice, even though we know, if necessary, we have to undergo trials and tribulations. That's what Peter is telling them. And sometimes we, because of our untested faith, don't see this. We don't see, or we've seen it so often, it's not that big a deal. What the salvation is that God has provided for us through the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for providing a salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would give us genuine, tested faith. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.